You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. It's time for a new episode of Digital Noise! We're back here again to review all the Blu-rays and DVDs that came out, or at least the ones they sent us to review that came out. I'm joined by John Golson. Hello. How you doing today, John? I'm doing good today. Are you excited to talk about these titles? I am excited to talk about these titles. I think we got some interesting stuff here. We've got things that are like... There's one of the titles that here that was a huge surprise that I liked it as much as I did, because I was expecting something a little more dry, and there's a title here that I was expecting to really enjoy, and I despised it so much I almost just want to set it on fire. Hmm. <laughs> um, but... Before we get started, a big thanks to our sponsor, Oscar Blues Brewing Company, lo- with locations in Austin, two in Colorado, one in North Carolina for their brew pubs, but you can buy their beer all over the place in the can, as well as their homemade sodas they sell in the can as well, which are quite delicious, and even they make dry rub. Isn't that like an arbitrary you thing? you got to get some of those sodas for when I come over. Well, the problem is they uh, don't can it here, so I can't. Oh, yeah. Like, I, okay. it's got a can in the facility, so unless I want to move to Colorado or something, I'm shit out of luck. Okay. Um, but they are quite good. Their their black uh, black cherry uh, cream soda just blew the top of my head off. It was terrific. But yeah, their beers are great. First draft, a craft brew in the can with their Dale's Pale Ale, which seems to be like generally speaking the favorite around these parts of the people who come over and and, and drink out of our beer fridge. Uh, highly recommend it. Please take a picture of yourself drinking an Oscar Blues and tag it with at Oscar Blues and at one of us net so they can know that in fact. You did it because we told you to. It doesn't hurt. Also, thanks to our subscribers. You know who you are. Thank you so much. We desperately need more of you. We'll always need more of you. A lot of sh- sites do Patreon. A lot of sites do very heavy-duty advertising. I mean, you know the podcast I'm talking about where, like, every five minutes there's another audio ad for Casper mattresses or, or, or uh, what's the underwear? Me- oh, me undies. Uh, uh, oh, is it me undies? Yeah, me undies. We had uh, we had Mac Weldon on my comic book one for a little while. Right, but you know, like yeah. a lot of them, they're like like underwear, ones, mattresses, and meals in a box. Yeah, those, those are ones like that the they're just in the start. And there's ones that literally it's like every five minutes, yeah. and you got to pay for the doing this somehow. And for us, we get subscribers, and you get tons of bonus content through that. So that's a much better deal than getting ten percent off your first order of me undies. It's a much better deal than hearing me and you talk about underwear and. And some ball comfort. <laughs> I'm just baffled that you can find that many different things to say about ball comfort. S- subscribe so you don't ever have to hear us ever say anything about that, ever. I promise to never discuss my testicles on the show if you subscribe. Uh, all right, so let's move on to the reviews, and let's get this thing started with the movie I described as the one I thought was going to be a little dry, and I ended up being quite taken with it, much to my surprise. And the title is The Complete Mouthful, Chappaquiddick. Now, I realize a lot of you guys out there are a lot younger than we are. Hell, I was too young for Chappaquiddick, but I knew about it. I, Dennis Miller jokes is Dennis my, Miller yeah, jokes that's from, my uh, the, introduction to he, Chappaquiddick. Back when he was more of a liberal and not like a crazy right-wing nutball yeah. like he is now, uh, when he had his HBO show. But yeah, Chappaquiddick was uh, a big scandal where uh, Ted Kennedy, when he was senator, he was like really right on the verge of running for president. Uh, Both his brothers were already dead at this point, tragically, and he got into a car wreck while drinking uh, over the Chappaquiddick River and basically left the woman in there who was a uh, secretary to his brother, Bobby, but now was sort of integrating in with his campaign, basically left her in there to die and didn't tell anyone until the next day. And the facts have always been very fuzzy about this case. Now, this movie does not play out like a political thriller or anything like that. It's actually kind of a, a, a slice-of-life character drama. It's sort of a... It, it, it's also sort of a comedy of errors, in a way. And a comedy, comedy sells it maybe too hard, but it is one of those things where you're watching a main character make decisions that continually make the situation worse yeah. than if he would have just behaved like any other normal human being would have from the start. That's true. Uh, it could have been uh, an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm, I suppose, on that note. <laughs> there are actually little touches of, like, gallows humor 
Oh, certainly. Uh, what, like the fight between Ed Helms and uh, and is it Jason Clark? Yeah, plays Jason Clark plays Ted, Ted Kennedy. Kennedy. Uh, they have that fight, that moment where he wants to wear the brace around his neck, and he's telling him, "Don't wear the brace around your neck." And they get in a little fight, which feels oddly comedic. Right. Uh, there are little odd, oddly comedic moments in it. I mean, and it's an oddly like thick, oddly comedian cast film. Jim Gaffigan also yeah. plays another of the main characters here. Helms and Gaffigan are two basic senior advisors slash sort of family members to the Kennedy family. Mm-hmm. They're not, but they're kind of treated like it. Who are there through a lot of it as they're basically trying to make uh, Jason Clark, Ted Kennedy, handle the situation correctly. But quick, like as we, as we watch this, the movie even is kind of abstract about what actually happened. Who's actually at fault for this this happening? Did he really, really try to get her out of the car? How drunk was he? Was it, were they having an affair or were they not? I mean, it was well known Kennedy had a lot of affairs. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. a lot. But, I mean, he's a Kennedy. What are you going to do? Yeah. Comes with the territory. But um, in this particular case, the movie never feels like it wants to it never gets down in the dirt and i kind of appreciated that about it it's just what would you do if you were in this scenario this guy who seems to be on the whole a good man but is just has no clue what to do like you're you're yeah. like you're fucked i mean even if he did the movie argues that possibly he did really try to get in the car and get her out and couldn't. I mean, they even show later this police guy is like, I can't get in this fucking thing. Uh, we yeah. need, like, extra help with, like, real heavy equipment. But you're like, okay, but if that's true, how the fuck did he get out of the car <laughs> in the first place? I appreciated that the movie, uh, you know, politics is such, dominates so much of the conversation. Mm-hmm. I kind of appreciated how apolitical it was. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of uh, if there's anything that kind of skirts any political lines, it's probably, uh, you know, I think the movie has something to say about white privilege and the fact that everybody takes him for his word, even though there are like obvious contradictions going on. Right. Um, but at the same time, it's, it does not, it's not a, you know, rose colored glasses view of the Kennedys at all. Um, it doesn't really take a political stance. It's more just like, how does the machine work when your best and brightest is might be accused of manslaughter, essentially? What happens to the political machine? I mean, he was the essentially that last hope for the Kennedy family. They mm-hmm. were like, you know, we've had so much tragedy we've had to deal with, and now we really want to get a Kennedy in the White House, and everybody was still feeling huge amounts of sympathy. If this hadn't happened, yeah. Ted Kennedy would have been president. There's like almost no doubt that he would have been president at this point and changed the course of history. But, you know, shit happens. Oh, Kate Mara, I didn't mention, plays, in fact, the the secretary who dies early on, but there's lots of flashbacks with her because they they really have the incident happen in the first 10 minutes. And if anything, I think that her story, if there's anything negative about this movie, it's that her story continues to kind of dehumanize her as a plot point in Ted Kennedy's life. Agreed. Which is sort of how history has also treated her as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the movie does no no different. Um, and that's not the story that they wanted to tell. But if there was anything that made me, um, they gave me pause, it was that I felt like there was not a, a greater consideration of... Uh, of her side of the thing, other than to show her family is kind of country bumpkins making sad faces at the television, which they would kind of cut to, which felt like obligatory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's really the only, that's really the only like strong negative criticism that I could, that I could level towards the but film. They were using them kind of reflection for how America was towards the Kennedys at that mm-hmm. point. They were just kind of like, at that point, they were all just so, felt so horrible for the whole family that they couldn't imagine that this guy had anything to do with the death of their daughter. Yeah. You know, which is is largely, I feel like, like, I, obviously the Republicans tried to push for the other side, but I think America on the whole was like, no, we feel bad for the guy when it when it all went down. But it's still, it still feels to me like the whole thing was has never been terribly conclusive. You've also got in here Bruce Dern playing the senior Kennedy, who appears to have been a bit, bit of a, a poisonous prick. <laughs> um, Clancy Brown, Olivia Thurlby. And I did want to point out as well, that I didn't realize till just now, this is directed by John Curran, who did another film... 
or two other films that I really enjoyed that kind of just got shuffled off quietly out of the theaters before anybody got a chance to see how good those were. And that was Stone in 2010 uh, with Robert De Niro, Ed Norton, and Mila Jovovich, film I really enjoyed and I could not get anyone else to watch for the uh, life of me. And then uh, The Killer Inside Me, uh, which he was uh, wrote the screenplay f- for, which is the adaptation of a Jim Thompson cr- uh, crime. Uh, very noir. Oh yeah, I remember that movie being Affleck. kind of controversial because there's mean, a lot of like really tough to watch violence in it. From well, what I mean, heard. it's a Jim Thompson adaptation. Yeah. <laughs> His stuff is is black, but I thought it was a great movie. But anyway, um, yeah, I I really enjoyed this overall. I don't think it's a perfect movie, and I certainly think. It's kind of a quiet film that's not going to be to anybody's taste who's looking for something lurid. You just want, like, a, a really well-directed, put-together character piece that does indeed offer some insight into what the fuck was that Chappaquiddick thing all about. This is it. What's the name of the, the distribution company name struck me as funny. It sounded fake. It was like... Uh, Lionsgate? No, 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 no. Not Lionsgate. It oh, was like... The- um, yeah, it was American. Hold on, Entertainment Studios Motion Pictures. Oh my God! It's it was like, and that came up in the title card, Entertainment Studios Motion Pictures, and I was like, "That's don't you right off the bat not trust a company with a name like that? <laughs> no, like there's no one creative working for you. Yeah, I was like, that that's got to be some kind of like tax shelter holding company. Now the the quality of the film doesn't reflect that, but I was like, what what is that? <laughs> it is kind of funny. I didn't even think about that. Uh, there are just a few extras here. There's a 25-minute uh, reckoning, a reckoning, revisiting Chappaquiddick, which is an overview of the making of the film with interviews and production data. And there's a 12-minute, 45-second bridge to the past, editing the film, focusing on, of course, the editor. And uh, he says is apparently John Curran was in... Uh, he was very nervous to work with him because he'd never worked with anything but one other editor on his other features. I presume he edited them himself. So hmm. uh, it's weird. But anyway, let's move on to our next title, which is Asiambra. Uh, this was the Italian entry for Best Foreign Language Film at the 90th Academy Awards, but it didn't end up being nominated. And I didn't realize till after I watched this film and, and uh, started to read about it that it's kind of a spinoff of a previous film by director Jonas Carpigiano. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Called Mediterranea. There's a character in here. The African-American guy is the main character from his previous film, Mediterranea. It's like not just the actor, but the character. And in fact, apparently he also made a documentary with the under the same name, like a documentary short, I believe, about this family. And I think everyone in it except the main kid actor, are actually the real family. Why is everybody trying to cash in on shared universes? Bunch <laughs> of bullcrap. Right? Um, it's, this is a, a very City of God-inspired type tale with uh, in the, the parts of Italy we don't usually see in films. We usually see the really beautiful, like either the vineyard countrysides, or we oh, see yeah. like, oh, the majesty of Rome or Venice, and here we see where all the really poor people live, the slums. And uh, this uh, main character, Pio, lives with his older brother in uh, a small Romani community in Calabria. So, like, for those of you who don't want to be politically correct or want to be outright offensive, gypsies is what people referred to them in a derogatory sense for a long time. A long time, yeah. Um, And they, sure enough, are, like, their family are, I mean, they are kind of grifters. They're not travelers, but, you know, they're, like, they're constantly looking for the next score, which this film has gotten some criticism for, for certain, for portraying them like that. Even though, once again, like I said, this is a family of Romani who are portraying themselves and their lifestyle. Um, which is not to speak ill of all Romani, just this one particular family. Uh, he has a relationship with this African American guy nearby, uh, who he's actually seems to be the only person he's actually close with, or has a real friendship with, but he idolizes his old, older brother who recently has gotten carted off temporarily to prison. Uh, and he's always one of those, Hey, can I come along? Can I help? Can I do this? And his brother's like, get out of here, kid. You bother me. And I think, Ultimately, this little slice of life film, we're watching this kid get in trouble and try to be more like his brother with his brother not there and involving, to some degree, his African-American friend. Uh, And then the movie turns around and decides it's going to be all about racism, 
all of a sudden it felt like, okay, there was an undercurrent, but it wasn't a big thing. And then the movie's like, no, no, we're about racism. <laughs> and it's odd, a film that's like about one of the most like prejudiced against like uh, races in the world, the Romani, who like, I'm, of course, immediately you're like fucking black people. And you're like, mm. you don't see the irony here at all. <laughs> Yeah, it it was also I think the movie is so kind of uh it's it's done in like that cinema verite like slice of life everything feels like supernatural uh not supernatural but <laughs> very natural there we go everything feels very natural and I think that at some point it kind of like it's not that it is plotless but it's sort of um it sort of just goes from scene to scene as he tra- kind of travels from moment to moment in his life. And at some point I do think it's sort of like, Oh, this needs like an, a resolution or it needs like, you know, some sort of, some sort of, I mean, it feels like it kind of comes to a head in the third act. Cause it definitely gets tense yeah. as he's forced to basically decide between his loyalty to his family and his friend. But then it does, it, it kind of peters out. I mean, I think overall I did really enjoy this, but I mean, as you said, when we talked about it earlier, I mean, it's a film like City of God, but I would never recommend this over City of God. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, and that's, it's, it, it is so similar because it is that, uh, fly on the wall watching, uh, children commit crimes. Uh, and, and it's not better than City of God. And then my other beef with it is that there's so few, you know, uh, the Romani have, I've read interviews and stuff, mostly related to, it's kind of funny, in a roundabout way, I, I don't think I was aware of their fight, really, until Peter David, they talked about the comic writer, Peter mm-hmm. David. There was a controversy at Comic-Con. Ever. <laughs> yeah, there was a controversy at a Comic-Con, maybe about five years ago, where they asked him why he always wrote... Uh, those characters in a negative light. And he went off and was like, because they are, they're thieves and they're this and this and this. And it was Damn. like, there was a big kerfluffle I about, about that. Yeah. And I do know a lot of Europeans feel very strongly justified in their racism against the Romans. And it's difficult to watch a film like this and know that, that you're trying, that they as a people are trying to fight against a stereotype mm-hmm. and then have this movie feed directly into the stereotype of thieving Romani. Right. I mean, uh, it, it, it's, it humanizes the boy completely, but yeah. it does the opposite to the rest of the family who are yeah. looked at as really just kind of being very close-minded, not very bright, definitely criminals, mm-hmm. you know, who feel justified in being able to do whatever they want and are themselves kind of hateful, yeah. you know? Uh, and you're right. It felt like if you wanted to make a movie that had more like was not portraying them in that light, then it probably should have spent more time with the other members of the family and given them more sides. Yeah, and my deal is like as a, an American and not an Italian, is this a, is this a real portrayal? Mm-hmm. It probably is, in the same way that Menace to Society is a real portrayal. But in America, we yeah, and if I'm going to use the early '90s as an example, yeah, we had Boys in the Hood, yeah, we had Menace to Society, but we also had television shows that had that were about black. We had Family Matters, we had The Cosby Show, you know, we had other portrayals of of black people in media where it was like, yeah, that there is these stories are being told, but these other stories are also being told. I'd be and curious with to know them, what... it's like I don't know that they're I, as an American, you're bringing this movie to me as exemplary enough to have it be your foreign film submittal. Mm-hmm. And I don't know of any other portrayal besides Wolfman movies. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and I'm just being bluntly honest. No, it's like, you're right. So this, this presents them as like car thieves or they're telling people to beware the moon. You know, it's yeah. like, <laughs> and, and I don't, I wouldn't want to stereotype of people that way, but I'm not seeing them any other way. Cause they're not portrayed in media any other or way. At least not ways that we're seeing right. here. I'd be really curious if anybody out there knows of a very positive, like like a television show or movie about a Romani family. I'd be really curious to see see what that is. Because like, like we said, this is mixed. I mean, I think the boy's a really interesting character, but even so, he too is kind of a little criminal <laughs> with not much of a moral center. Uh, it's, it is a kind of movie that is that is very good 
and, and <laughs> it always this. I feel like I'm like this always comes up on the on the shows that I'm on. There's always one movie that I'm like, this is really good, but it's not for me. Hmm. And this was one where it's like. This is really this is good. It's quality. That everything feels very very well natural. Made. It feels you're getting a glimpse into a world you don't normally get to see. But ultimately, it I don't know that the movie itself as a story was really for me. Uh, so. there, the Blu-ray comes with a behind the scenes documentary called The Other Side of the Story. Uh, it comes from a feature with a featurette called From Siambra to Cans. There's some deleted scenes, and then there's the original short film included with it as well. And I would have watched that had I known. That then what I know now, yeah. <laughs> I, I did not know that. Well, our next one is one we, a lot of people I, that we know already saw, saw this at Fantastic Fest play. It was called 24 by 36, a movie about movie posters. I did not go see this because as much as I, you know, I like, I obviously own a few, like, art designed movie posters in my house, but I've never been one of those. I must own all of these. I must every month. I, oh my God, something's on sale at Mondo. I must spend all my money on it. Yeah. And we know a lot of people that that's their entire like hobby, I guess, <laughs> other than watching movies. And so I'm always like, yeah, I like movie posters, but it's not a big thing. And this movie is the most self-congratulatory <laughs> documentary I've seen in a while. We're like, isn't loving movie posters great? Oh my God, they're great. And look at these great people. It's all great. I've seen two movies like that this year because the Funko Pop documentary is that way. Oh, is there? I didn't even know there was a Funko Pop. Yeah, and it's like the first 20 minutes are here's the history of the company and then the rest of the hour plus is and here's the people that love Funko Pops. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's this is the same kind of thing where it's like the first the first bit of it is like here's some history and then it's just like, and here's a bunch of people that love posters. <laughs> yeah, it's the history part. I was like, oh, this is really interesting. Like the like the the background history of Hollywood and how it went from, you know, the period where you had all the greats, you know, the legends of movie posters, and how it went to just everything being photoshopped. It's interesting, but it's like 15, 20 minutes of this, uh, what, like 88, 82 minute film. Um, and then the rest of it is just going, you know, let's talk to the guys at Mondo. Let's talk to these guys. And let's just go, wow, isn't this great? It's all great. I love it. It's great. <laughs> Except yeah. Tim Doyle. Our, I don't know if you know. You know Tim Doyle? I know Tim. Okay. Like, so I'll say our buddy, Tim Doyle. I'm trying to think of the faces I knew in there. I knew Tim, I know Tim and I know Justin Ishmael. I mean, even Tim is like, you know, runs a poster company, Nakatomi Inc., but he's the one guy who has anything negative to say at all, which he's like, these guys doing these limited print runs and all that, this is bullshit. And he, like, I, art should be for everyone. I make prints. There's no limit. It's always we're always going to manufacture it. It's always going to be for sale at yeah. the same price. If you see my a Nakatomi print on eBay, don't buy it because I guarantee you it's cheaper on the site. <laughs> uh, which you know, I mean, I'm, I'm actually surprised they even put him in there. I was talking to him about that, and he was like, "Yeah, I was kind of shocked they used that footage too." But other than that, I was like, "Yeah, I mean, this is great." If you're like, I don't, I guess if I don't know much about this, but I've seen just enough to know. I like this type of thing. I just don't know which artists I think I prefer. And this is kind of does a purview of each of the major artists and shows their style. And actually kind of codified for me some people. I'm like, okay, that's the guy whose stuff I don't like. That's the guy's <laughs> stuff I do like. You know? Yeah. Um, that's the guy's stuff you can own one of, but you wouldn't want a whole bunch of, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I mean, did you feel the same way I did? This is I, just very I think, slight. Yeah, I think there's a lot of worth in the first... Third of it, where it is in the history, I think that stuff's really fascinating. I think there was more to explore there, um, and there was probably a story to tell there as well. Uh, when it gets into the boutique poster stuff, it just becomes a movie for people who collect boutique posters. Yeah, because a lot of it is like cribs, where it's like, here's my baby room, and yeah. here's all the posters that are in there. Let me take you to my office, and here's all the posters that are in here, and here's my flat file, and here's what's inside. And I'm like. I don't know that that makes a good documentary because it's not really a story. No, it's and, just a guy hanging out with his friends who are all showing off their stuff because they all have a, the similar interest. And, and when you get into the f adding faces to the people who are doing the posters, that stuff's interesting. But if you notice, they never talk to them about their love of movies mm -hmm. or why they got into it or how they got into it. It just sort of is like they're just talking to them about the craze. Right. And again, I'm like, I want stories. I mean, you do get to see the act of screen printing, which I found fascinating. Mm -hmm. But I wanted more of that. I wanted more of that meat of tell me stuff I tell me stuff I don't know that's useful. Educate me. Because just saying 
hey, there are a lot of cool posters that people buy, and you're saying that for an hour straight. Yeah. I'm not getting any new information. No. And we live in Austin. We know. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, it, it is displaying a lot of that art, which is really cool, but it ends up being in a way no different than a Google image search. Mm-hmm. That it's sort of just like, here's some great looking posters and we're going to talk over them. And that's our yeah. movie. Yep. Pretty much. Uh, if you decide that that's not enough, though, and you're like, I want even more of that stuff, there's 30 <laughs> minutes of additional interviews on the disc as a bonus feature of more of the same, pretty much. I mean, heck, even Mondo itself, like, to for them not to touch with a 10-foot pole the controversy of, you know, Tim worked for Mondo. Why doesn't he work for Mondo anymore? Justin worked for Mondo. Why doesn't Justin work for right. Mondo anymore? They don't touch any conflicts I mean, even, at all. Public, Tim, public conflicts. Even Tim, they don't touch it. Even Tim, who is like brings in a little bit of controversy with his stance, has a lot of things to say about Mondo. If you ask him, that are not good in his opinion. And uh, I was like, I kind of wanted to see. Okay, so what? That would be a really interesting story. Why are there the problems like this? What's mm-hmm. going on? But no, none of that. Uh, so the next film here, you did not get to see. I just watched this. This is the 1972 film Street Mobster by uh, legendary director Kinji Fukasaku, who is um, had a, a long history of of uh, making very big films, including directing the Japanese portion of Tora Tora Tora. Uh, which was a big Hollywood release in 1970. Uh, he did the the legendary and thought of often as the best Yakuza movie ever made, Battles Without Honor and Humanity in 1973. He did Shogun Samurai, but you guys out there probably know him best because his last movie before he died was Battle Royale, which, of course, is awesome. <laughs> but this is one of those movies I was not familiar with. I'm just now, I'm going through my own education about Yakuza films, thanks to Arrow, who's been putting a lot of these things out, and Spaghetti Westerns and Pulitzer films. Uh, but Street Mobster is generally considered to be in the top five all-time Yakuza films as well. And I see why, but holy shit, is this a movie that is... Not for your even slightly woke viewer. <laughs> it's got so much rape in it, I don't even know how to start. Uh. And the main character, uh, Buntu Suga, Sugawara, who is uh, was in a whole series of films from uh, Toei, uh, all of which were Yakuza films. They were not the same story or related, but he played the main character in all of them. This was considered to be the best out of that whole series. He plays a complete piece of shit human being. He is garbage, and the movie makes no mistake about it. He is just a street gang thug um, where they beat up girls, rape them, and sell them to brothels. What a hero. Uh, and they get beat up because the local Yakuza family, uh, they're not giving them a cut because he, he's got a a problem with authority, basically, you know, which is an issue if you're doing crime and the Yakuza is there. Um, He's sent to jail. He comes out. uh, One of the guys, basically, who he's in jail was like, hey, look, uh, I want to help you out. I think we've got opportunity here to move in and start our own, like, sort of Yakuza clan. There's there's a there's a kind of a uh, what what do you call it? Cold War brewing between these two rival clans here. And I think we could slip right in the middle and, and get some shit done. And, of course, Things end up going sideways. They end up having to work for one of the clans. The girl who we see him abducting and raping in the first part, apparently later, like they, he, the, like when he gets out of jail, the guy's like, "Oh, we got you a hooker," and it's her, and she beats him up, and then she's like, "I hate you, I hate you," and then she's like, "I love you," and you're like, "What movie? What?" So she's like his girlfriend for the rest of the movie, even though he's regularly sleeping with pretty much anybody else who comes along. Um, it's weird. The only real sympathetic character in here is the leader of one of the Yakuza clans, who's still a piece of shit. He's a Yakuza gangster, but he's like the guy, like, he's, they just Yoda him the whole time. He's always like, yes, it's very well. the, the answer is not to resort to violence. You know, you're like, what? He's the guy who's basically trying to become the street businessman because he made all, he got up there with yeah. the crime, but now he's like, he doesn't have to. And it's an incredibly well shot film. It's really fast moving as fuck. I mean, it's like a lot of these Yakuza films are a slog. This one is not. It moves really quick. It's super violent. I mean, it gets brutally violent at points. Um, it's action packed and, well, unfortunately, rape packed. Um, and it's obviously, but when you get to the end, you're like, okay, this is a morality tale. No, this movie is never trying to make you like this protagonist. Ever. Yeah. Um, 
but it's a relatively short watch at 92 minutes, and and it is definitely a view into the 70s Yakuza culture that's unlike anything else, and one of the best ones I've seen outside of the difficulty, of course, of watching the the unwoke elements of it. Uh, and it's Arrow, so, you know, that means they're, they're not fooling around, and they, they pack this thing with a few bonus features here that are well worth seeing, uh, but obviously it's not going to be for everybody's tastes. Uh, move on to another era one that you did see that I would say even even the one extra feature on your interview with like a historian of like these type of films is like no nah, this movie sucks. <laughs> oh, you didn't like this funny. one? Well, even the guy on the thing is like this is not a good movie. Uh, Detective Bureau two three go to hell bastards, um, which is a 1963 Yakuza film directed by Saijin Suzuki, who's another one of the all time legendary like uh, like y- Yakuza film directors. And it was like they were trying to do a series of sort of very offbeat kind of comedy Yakuza films, and it didn't last. They managed to make one more, and nobody was nobody liked him at the time, so they just stopped making them. I kind of I kind of dug this. Okay, there's a there's a Yakuza guy who is uh, has pissed off his fellow uh, criminals, and the cops are going to try to like flush him out, and a cop goes undercover. Uh, and joins the Yakuza, uh, and it has a lightly comedic vibe. It's not a comedy, mm-hmm. but it's sort of like, um, I mean, the guy himself is so absurd. The main guy, he's yeah. just like, he's almost like Maxwell smart or something that he's just such a, you're like, you would have been killed doing this. Yeah. There's like a vibe. There's a vibe to it that I kind of liked. That was that sort of, it reminded me of, um, of, uh, some of the British movies of that time, like the original Italian job or stuff like mm. that, like where it's like, it's not funny exactly, but it's definitely not a heavy crime film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a, it's probably in the neighborhood of being a caper movie, but it's not quite a caper either because again, it's just, it's, you know, it's cops versus, versus gangsters. I, I kind of dug this. I wouldn't necessarily say it's like, you know, it, it it wasn't fantastic, but right. I liked the general vibe of it a lot. Okay, uh, I I liked the, the the times I enjoyed it is when it got all swing in sixties because yeah. there are those points that like it feels like the episode of Dragnet with Timothy Leary. You know, you're just like, yeah. What is that? I, and I liked the weird I liked the weird female cop. Yes, yes. At one point, she's wearing uh she's wearing a like long. A coat with a red flannel inside, but her outfit that she's wearing matches the inside of the coat. She's in like a red flannel onesie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, There's um, some weird outfits. I, I really like the strange, the strange woman cop. And there's a scene early on in the movie where the cops and the uh, Yakuza are rioting. Uh, and the cops are shooting tear gas into the crowd, and people are, like, going after each other with baseball bats. And it cuts to her listening to it on the radio, and she just starts cackling. And then, it like, just laughing at what she's hearing on the radio. And then it goes back to the riot. And she doesn't have a line. She doesn't have a scene. It's just, like, an edit out of context of, like, here's this wacko listening to the radio laughing at what she's hearing. It's a bizarre sequence. I remember that specifically going, what was just happening there? I feel like... Culturally, I'm missing something in large parts of this film, but I find that's often more true with stuff that is intended to be comedic from Japan than it is for stuff that's supposed to be purely dramatic. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I don't get the joke. And apparently I had read somewhere that the guy that's in it was like one of Japan's biggest stars or something like that at the time. He's an odd-looking dude. He's got uh, very distinct cheeks. Yeah, uh, he is oddly. He's got. He. I kept thinking he was like had was storing something in his cheeks, like a chipmunk. Or yeah, something. like he was chewing on like chewing tobacco or something. Because his upper cheekbones are always like like Marlon Brando in The Godfather or something. Like, what is wrong with that guy? But he was quite a popular actor, apparently. Um, what's his name? Oh my goodness, I, I have no idea how to pronounce something with that kind of accent mark over it. But Joe Shishido. I don't know. Or Hideo Tajima, I guess. Anyway, um, the, I'm, this is, I mean, it's definitely not considered to be a masterwork by the director, uh, but 
right now, somebody at Arrow is super, super into Saijin Suzuki because they have just been releasing shit tons of his stuff. Like, box sets of, like, everything he made in the first ten years that nobody cares about because he didn't make a good film until well after that. But here it is! You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, he's People probably know him really well for Branded to Kill and Tokyo Drifter, both of which are excellent. Um but, you know, I mean, I, I th- you th- even though you'd like to, you admit this is, you know, Oh, it's slight. Disposable. It's very slight. Yeah, it's not some hidden gem where I would tell somebody to, like, you know, I, I think if you like swinging 60s stuff or you like uh, Japanese culture that it's worth seeking out. Uh, but, you know, it's not, it's not some diamond in the rough that uh, I, I would tell anybody to go really go out of their way. Uh, so our next one is, is the other one this week you did not get to see, which is what, what? have they done to your daughters? Which is a that poster is insane. It is. It's a, G- a 1974 Giallo uh, Palazzi movie <laughs> uh, that's kind of like so right down the line between the two. It's kind of hard to say which it is. Uh, I, it definitely felt a little more like a Giallo, but it's based. Uh, it's directed by Massimo Dalamano, who um, was. Uh, the cinematographer for Fistful Dollars and for a few dollars more, and he went on to do a lot of movies just like this, uh, including the movie that this is clearly from the title, trying to solicit you thinking the same thing about the much better What Have You Done to Solange in 1972, which is considered to be kind of a classic. Uh, This is not a classic, but it is one of those movies that moves fast enough and it has, like, it just has enough notably distinct things wrong with it that you can't help but kind of laugh watching it. Like, the, all the gore effects are so bad. I mean, just unbelievably bad. Like, the opening scene is this naked girl who's been hung by the neck and she's dead. And it's so... I mean, they're close-ups, and it's clearly just a store mannequin <laughs> that they put some makeup on. And you're like, okay. Um, the uh, she's Turns out she's 14 years old, although... Doesn't the mannequin like is only 14. The morning mannequin is only 14. Well, we see flashbacks of hers okay. uh, when she was alive. Um, and she, apparently, with all these girls at this girl's school, have all, like, a lot of them are, end up getting sucked into a prostitution ring where they deal with older clients, and one at a time, they're being murdered and disappearing, and everyone's very reluctant to talk about it, and clearly, high people in society are involved, and the, the, even the, their bosses are like, uh, I don't know, you know, I mean, this is... Uh, we're never going to, even if, if it is these people, we're never going to get to hand down arrests for them and stuff. And a clever cop and a clever assistant DA played very strange for one of these movies playing, uh, played by a woman, Giovanni Raleigh, who's actually kind of a regular in these films, but her being portrayed as not a screaming Mimi. She's actually a really intelligent, strong character who helps break the case, even though the movie has to do every time, like, and the assistant DA and every guy in the room's eyes widen. They're like, what a lady? <laughs> uh, there is a lot of fun to be had with this, this really stupid movie, but it's also another one of those. It's a little uncomfortable because, like I said, it's a child prostitution ring, and pretty much the, all the girls in this who I, I don't honestly know what the laws were in Italy at the time, but they all look pretty fucking young, and they are way naked in this movie. I mean, there's even a extra feature on here that's hardcore footage never used. And I was like, what the fuck is that? And sure enough, it's triple X footage that they didn't chose not to put in the film that they filmed for the movie. I'm like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. <laughs> um, but it's just so weird. There's so many giant holes in it and the acting is so bizarrely over the top and there's like the the guy who's the killer rides around in a black leather like whole like motorcycle suit and a black helmet who kills people with a giant butcher cleaver which seems incredibly inconvenient where the fuck are you putting that thing if you're riding around on a motorcycle i don't it's it is what it is. These type of movies, when you start getting down into the nitty-gritty, into the stuff that's not considered classic into either Giallo or Polizzi, it it's almost better if it's worse. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Where you're like, the wilder it is, you're like, okay, I can watch that. So on your, on the show's sponsor links, do those pull, or do you select the images? Uh, on the on our sponsor links, you mean at the yeah. at the top of the page? Like, no, like when you do when you when you do a post for the show, and it, you have the covers down at the bottom of oh, yeah. the timestamp. I, I chose choose those. Okay, maybe you subscribe through iTunes and you're listening right now. I still you should go to oneofus.net. This now that the show is live, 
Go to the post for the show and look at the poster for this movie. It's crazy. The poster literally made me laugh out loud. It's like a cop with his head back screaming and like somebody riding by on a motorcycle. But yeah. the drama of the cop is what makes me laugh. Which is actually a it's shot such in an, the film. It's such an anguished... It's like... It's the scene where yeah. that cop is like reaching around a corner in a dark room to find the light switch and the killer uses his butcher to ch- just chops his hand off basically and then blood goes everywhere and he goes ah so that actually is a shot from the movie yeah it's it's so good it's uh it is quite an image uh, so there actually are a decent amount of bonus features on this fucking weird little movie, including a commentary track by to- Troy Ho- Howarth, who wrote the multi-volume guide to Giallo films called So Deadly, So Perverse. Uh, there's Monsters and Slaves for 20 Minutes, which is the editor of Diabolique, uh, Kat Ellinger, uh, digging into the, the themes of this director's filmography. Uh, there is Dalamano's Touch for 22 Minutes, which talks with the editor, uh, Eternal Melody, and the songs to this are actually quite memorable. They're like, even though they do that thing a lot of Italian films are do, they'll be doing horrible, brutal stuff, and the music's like, la, 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 da, 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 and you're like, why is this happy music playing? I, I, you know, from everything I've always read, it, they're always like, it was all about juxtaposition. You know, it was supposed to make you feel uncomfortable. Uh. It was that kind of thing. But I don't know. Anyway, 49 minute interview with the composer. Um, hardcore footage, like I mentioned previously. Uh, the, uh, English ti- original titles here. Uh, uh, theatrical trailer image gallery. It's actually a huge amount of extras for, like I said, a pretty minor little film. But hey, what are you going to do? Let's talk about a very minor little film that just came out. Brand new, guys. <laughs> oh, do we gotta? We gotta. <laughs> We're talking about. I was so excited to see this when I saw the trailer. Yeah, for, with James Franco directing and starring in a sort of road warriorish type film called Future World that was coming out of fucking nowhere. I was like, I am totally going to watch the shit out of this movie. And it's a James Franco-directed movie, all right, which means you never know what you're going to get, and sometimes it's navel-gazing bullshit. Well, this is one of those times. Yeah, it's calling in a favor with famous friends. Uh, I, I, I don't know. Like, it's there's sex robots in it. Yeah, Suki Waterhouse uh, playing the notable protagonist. Which would feel better if it felt like a real movie, but because it feels like you called in a favor to your friends and Franco's gotten in trouble for uh, being shitty to co-star women yeah. it sort of taints the whole thing to make a movie about like future sex trade <laughs> I mean and it, it you can feel it trying to say but we're trying to show this is bad and break away from that but still it's there. it lingers yeah it lingers it lingers um, and it's it, boring it's even, I mean yeah. it's you that's know, its major problem. it is it just as a movie it's just it's just dull it is uh it's an anom- it's, it's it's a like a conversation piece kind of a movie in that you, you someday somebody will be like, did you ever see that movie with James Franco and Snoop Dogg and Mila Jovovich and Lucy Liu? And it's kind of like Mad Max. And somebody will go, that sounds really cool. And they'll watch it and be like, this is terrible. This is awful. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but it, it's yeah. There's no there, there's really nothing. I th- this was a this movie was like a wank. Yeah, it's, it's like a like just like a. It's a second. You can't movie. see the motion I'm making <laughs> yeah, on the but air, but it's the wank it's, motion. It's the second sort of. This is supposed to make audiences think of the Road Warrior film that's come out in the last year that ended up being a anti-cerebral wank fest bullshit. Yeah, you know, what's being the, the uh, bad batch? Yeah, the bad which batch. Was awful. And, and and the bad batch was was the bad batch was not great. Still better than this, but the, yeah, because the Bad Batch, the promise of payoff, hung over Bad Batch in a way that it doesn't on Future World. The mm-hmm. promise of payoff on Future World expends itself about fifteen to twenty minutes in, but Bad Batch has enough weirdness just around the corner to kind of keep you going around the corners of that movie until you get to the end, and you're like, "Why did I watch that?" But this one gets dull so fast, and you're like, "It's got to." Come yeah, to something, no. right? And you keep going. We haven't even seen Mila Jovovich yet. When she shows up, I'm sure it's going to get cool. But now, the plot, such as it is, 
It's the post-apocalyptic wasteland. We see there's a, a group of people that have found an oasis and live a peaceful life and what have you. But Lucy Liu, who's the mom of the of the son, who's like the prince or whatever, she's dying and he's got to go get medicine, which means he's got to head out into the wasteland and go on a, a hero's journey, I guess. And it's the secret of Nip. Uh, yeah. And, it's like a reverse secret of Nip. Sorry. And uh, he <laughs> goes to the local strip club town uh, with his, with his I, I guess it was his older brother, I'm not yeah. sure, uh, where James Franco kind of hangs out and, and, and uh, doesn't run it, but clearly is kind of an alpha dog there. The place is run by Snoop Dogg. It's like a strip club slash prostitution place slash just bar nightclub out in the middle of the desert. And James Franco, we see, yeah, he's a, he's an evil warlord, and we've also seen that he's found in an abandoned warehouse, uh, android, Suki Waterhouse, super hot, sex robot, and he's like, you're my sex robot now, who also is super strong, so she also makes a nice little enforcer for him. Um, so, when they're there, they're like, oh, we're gonna, we're gonna take your shit from you because they make the mistake of revealing they have a gun that works because apparently this has been long enough in the future that nobody can find bullets anymore. They're guns, but no bullets are work anymore. Yeah. I don't know how that would work. Bullets aren't that hard to make. Uh, maybe something happened in the atmosphere that made gunpowder not work right. I don't know. It's really stupid. It makes no sense. But anyway, so they get away or the kid gets away only because suddenly in like apropos of nothing, Suki Waterhouse goes, killing is wrong. I want to help this kid. <laughs> and changes sides. That was an amazing impression. Um, <laughs> thank you. Un- un- I was like, Suki's it. Where, put, where is she? Is I she put here? a lot of work in the, the living room. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's the two of them on the run and encountering other weirdos, including, I said, Mila Jovovich, who like has her own problems. And I don't know. It's just, it just rambles from one place to another, makes decisions that make no sense whatsoever. And at the end, you were like, Seriously? I mean, there's just nothing I like about this movie. No. No. There's there's not. I can't believe... I mean, I know it's got a lot of big stars in it, but I still can't believe they actually released it. You're like, you sure you want to release that? I can't imagine it's going to do any good for anybody's career that's involved with this fucking thing. And there is a behind-the-scenes featurette, uh, but, you know, hey... You're never going to watch. Oh, yeah, you probably will. I forget who I'm talking to. You guys are always like, oh, I know those great movies you told us about, but that one you said was like the worst piece of shit you've ever seen. That's the one we went and watched. Like, God damn it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, now I want to see it. Yeah, exactly. Like, You're like, or you can watch the ones we said were great, which I admit we've so far not been wildly kind to films uh, on this podcast. Ever. We've been like, yeah, it's okay. Uh, uh, but I think you'll find that this last film we're talking about this week will be the masterpiece you've been waiting for. The film that will change your life when you see it. You know you've been waiting to. I'm sorry, it's still not that film. It's Rampage, 2018's Rampage. I did not get to see this in the theater with the other guys. You did? I saw it theatrically, yeah. yes. I, and you were like, when I handed it to you, you literally were like, ah, fuck. <laughs> I uh, I did not enjoy this movie, and I'm a fan of the video game, and I actually thought, you know, maybe this will be the one. Maybe this will be the video game movie. It is the highest that, uh, rated on Rotten Tomatoes movie adapted from a video game. Well. Yeah, which is um, say, still not that high of a ranking. You know, and I can understand the thought of people going, well, what, I, you know, you pay to see the big dumb monsters wreck stuff. What did you expect? My problem is that the... I've seen lots of good movies that Big Dumb Monsters wreck stuff. This just wasn't one of them. There's, it's poorly written. There's a lot of really... It needs to it needs to wink more. It needs a big old splash of, like, Paul Verhoeven in it. It mm. needs, like, some Starship Troopers-y kind of... I don't mean that level of satire, but this movie really needs to wink more than it does because this movie takes itself really seriously. But you can tell... And it's dumb as shit, but you and that's a problem. elements in it that you're like, why wasn't this more of a Verhoeven thing? Like, the villains, who apparently have no real sensible motive for doing what they're no. doing whatsoever. They own a Rampage arcade machine, yeah. which is weird. A Malin Ackerman playing, like, this scheming businesswoman, who I'm like, I still, at the end, I was, like, telling other people, explain to me what she was hoping to accomplish. No, what she was it doesn't doing. make... The yeah. villain plot makes no sense, yeah. and, and sh- so... And it's, like, compounded by the fact that she has no character to play, so she's bad in it. Mm-hmm. Their plot makes no sense. Yep. And the movie keeps returning to them like like a rhythm. 
it's the good guy seeing the bad guy seeing the good guy seeing the bad guy seeing the good guy seeing the bad through the whole thing it follows that rhythm and the bad guy stuff is so crappy and again the plot doesn't make any sense and i know that i know there are people listening going oh it's fun or it's you know again what did you expect i just paid to see a gorilla knock down a building and that's what they do and it's like <laughs> that's just, all you want out of a movie i don't know what to tell you <laughs> i i i mean we live in a world where marvel has put out so many movies and the bulk of them are way worth seeing and are pretty good movies mm-hmm. by far and you guys are still making apologies for rampage i mean come on yeah, <laughs> I mean, like, when do we get to the point that you expect something better? And I feel like we should be way past that. Now, that being said, I've seen much worse movies of this sort than Rampage. I have seen worse, and I think that's what made me angrier was I was I couldn't understand why it felt so first draft. I mm-hmm. couldn't understand why I was like, this is witless. And all it needs is a polish from a smart writer. Agreed. Like, it just needed one more pass. Or, you know, I say that. I'm, I'm kind of armchair quarterbacking. Sure. But it was definitely one of those things where it's like, there's no excuse for a movie this expensive and this big to be this witless. I mean, with Dwayne Johnson, who is arguably one of the biggest stars in the world right now, at least in terms of bankability and box office, and there's, I, I cannot deny Dwayne Johnson's huge charisma. Mm. I mean, the guy's very charismatic. When he smiles, you smile because you almost can't help it. It's like when someone walks up to you and smiles, who has got a great smile, you smile before you even realize you've smiled back at them. He does that on the When screen. he asks me if I can smell what he's cooking, yeah. I can actually smell it. You actually it. can smell it. When You're he like, says, yeah, well, can you smell what The is Rock that- is cooking? I'm like, yeah, you know what? I think I can. Are those tacos? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love tacos. He plays... A primatologist who's the nicest person in the world, but also kick-ass because he used to be in Special Forces, but now he's the nicest person in the world. And he works with gorillas, including his best friend, George the Giant Albino Gorilla. Well, not giant yet. He's just an albino gorilla who has he's taught sign language to. And honestly, I'll tell you right off the bat, the scenes with George and, and Dwayne, I actually love those scenes. It's the one thing in this movie that I was like, I don't hate this movie because that was kind of great. The two of them together, they had he had chemistry with the CG gorilla. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's that's how much chemistry that uh, charisma Dwayne Johnson has. He can have lots of chemistry with the gorilla. Um, And then a thing comes out of space. It's an experimental shit, and it hits, and George starts growing really, really huge. And then it turns out there's also an alligator that that got another piece of it and is getting huge, and a wolf. And inexplicably, the wolf and the alligator look all evil and have extra shit they can do. But George is just giant George. They never, they never even bother to explain that. Also, why are are they not proportionally growing the same way? Because George is like tiny compared to them. Yeah, he should be like towering over the wolf and 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 the. Uh, uh, Listen, it's science, and yeah. it's going to take like eight years of schooling and <laughs> just to figure all that out. Biology, you got to be a primatologist. I mean, I realize there's a point. You realize how dumb the movie is that you're watching. That you just go, why do I even care about shit like that? And I guess I don't. But it just comes so constantly in this film. The super dumb shit like that. And I think it's typical. This director, Brad Payton, I'm sorry. I know some of you guys out there like San Andreas, but I thought that also was another one that was just relentlessly stupid. And I was like, with Dwayne Johnson, I was like, Dwayne, I love you, man, but you got to find someone else to work with. That was something else. I ne- it never got me, even in the animal fight stuff, I did not get it. We've reached a point, and I remember this when I saw it theatrically, thinking we've reached a point where this level of spectacle is boring. Yeah. Like... It's a half hour of, like, exploding buildings and monsters punching each other in the face and all the CG, and I'm just, like, I'm just looking at the screen. Like, I'm not involved in the story. I don't think anything's particularly cool. I'm just staring at images as they pass me by, and I'm and completely uninvolved. Yeah. uninvolved. And it's, like, it's funny that we've reached that place where, where that, because that, for a while, was a selling point. I mean, that's the whole, you know, what's what's his name, the... 2012 day after tomorrow guy right, Emmerich. Well, Emmerich. I mean, yeah that was his stock and trade was that level of stuff there was but it's always just a like... degree of affection because he was actually surprisingly good with actors despite mm. the fact the scripts were terrible he could get decent funny performances out of, uh, yeah. out of good people and he cast well 
I think the tipping point for these movies was the Transformers franchise. Yeah. Where everything was like, it's not enough anymore. It's just noise. Yeah, it's, it's visual just noise. noise. Yeah. And there's too many good films that have this level of CG quality to give a forgiveness to. Well, we've said all this. I did want to point out as well, Jeffrey Dean Morgan plays a government agent who works for the company literally called the OJGA, the other government agency. So some, something top secret, presumably is playing Negan from The Walking Dead. I mean, not in terms of the things that he does, but his performance is completely unchanged, except that he's added a little hint of a Texas accent to his voice. Other than that, he does that same thing where he, like, tilts his head and leans back and stuff. You're like, you really... You just didn't even bother to shift gears at all for this one, did you? Get back to the back to the set. Exactly. A break. Uh, And I love Naomi Harris too. She's wasted. She's yeah. She's the the for lack of a better term sidekick because she doesn't have much to do despite the fact she's in a lot of the movie. Um, Yeah, she's wasted. Um, Yeah, this is. I mean, it's better than a lot of these. But that being said, that's not a compliment, really. It's it's still super on the low end of watchability. Um, I guess it's worth it for, like, you know, a hungover afternoon on the couch. I'd say, sure, watch Rampage, why not? But it didn't do much for me. If you're one of those people, though, it's like, fuck you, Chris and John. I love Rampage. Uh, the Blu-ray comes with uh, uh, a cast and crew reflecting on the original game for six minutes, because who doesn't want to see that? Uh, ten minutes of deleted scenes, uh, <laughs> including a bunch of stuff with Joe Maggianello, who's barely in the film, but apparently he did a lot more and they made him more more evil in the original version. Uh, two minute and 43 second gag reel, which is like every gag reel you see at sea today, where it's basically just shots of people laughing on set. And I, I don't even know why they bother with these things anymore. Yeah. Uh, Rampage actors and act action, which takes a look at the previs artwork, uh, putting together the scenes with practical and digital sets, yada, yada. Tree of Destruction, 10 minutes, which looks at all three monsters and how they did the special effects with them. Attack on Chicago for 10 minutes, which is a breakdown of the role that once they get to the big city and start tearing shit up, but how that all worked. And then a specific 11-minute look at how they did George, who by far is like the, the thing they clearly spent the most amount of time on in special effects to try and get him right. And like I said, George is likable. I actually kind of, when you think George is dead at one point in the film, I actually went, oh, gasp. <laughs> Not George. He was the only thing keeping me here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Gonna, yeah. You can't even go that far. You can't give it up for George. Uh, no. I, there's a part of me, too, that wonders at the end of the day as well. Like, it, it's not, I mean, this is going to be like the most nerdy, nitpicky thing. But in the video game, they were humans that were working on this stuff. Same kind of like experimental stuff that tr- managed to transform themselves into giant monsters. Mm-hmm. And I still think that even that sounds like a more interesting story. And they change it in this, but it's like, do they change it? Is there a reason they change it? Does it have something to say about that? Is there a, is there some kind of something? And it's like, no. Yeah. So why would you change something that's weirder and more interesting and also gives you three characters right off the bat to work with and go, no, we're just going to, it's just an alligator. Right. It's like, I don't even understand that. Like, even as a video game adaptation, I'm like, why would you kind of get rid of the core story of the game? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I got no answers for you there, John. But it's another video game movie failure. Everyone always forgets about the two, I think, that are decent movies. The original Resident Evil and Mortal Kombat that are both, no question, C-grade films. But they're great C-grade films. Mortal Kombat's fidelity to its source material and getting the job done. A lot of it's a matter of, like, how close is it? does it hit the target of what it's trying to represent? Mm-hmm. Mortal Kombat probably comes the, the closest. closest. Yeah. Silent Hill is another one I think comes close, but I don't find Silent Hill scary. I don't find the movie scary. I don't think... I think the first one's kind of interesting, I mean, and, and it gets the same vibe right. I would say horror movies don't have to be scary to be good, but it's based on one of the scariest games ever made. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that should be scary to yeah. work. And that one... It, it, I, I watched the second one, too. Oh, the second maybe. one's horrible. Yeah. And the first yeah. one's not very good. Um, but it's still... Better than most video game adaptations. I yeah. still enjoy the first Resident Evil, despite the fact it barely has anything to do with the game. It, it was surprising in its time mm-hmm. that it was like, "Wow, this is actually God, a reasonably you know, solid, like a like zombie." Not to go on a movie. tangent, but uh, it's funny to watch that now. I don't know when the last time you've seen Resident Evil One is about a year ago. It's so crazy how 
the rules surrounding zombie gore have changed, that movie now would definitely be a PG-13. Oh, yeah. There's no way that would get an R. With the amount of stuff they show on television, on horror TV shows, even The Walking Dead, the stuff people are acclimated to on The Walking Dead is worse than the X-rated George Romero movies that were coming out in the 70s. You're absolutely right. It's so crazy to me how tame Resident Evil is watching it nowadays. Another thing I got out of it watching it again was how much it ripped off from that movie Cube. Yeah. I was like, holy shit, there's so much in here that's directly stolen from a movie. They're like, no one's ever going to see that movie. We'll just take this. Uh, Anyway. The upside to Rampage is that... uh, there are a whole bunch of tie-in product at your local Walmart. <laughs> and, and so if you're it's a fan true. of the video game, there's a lot of really cool Rampage, like, little rubber toys and vinyls and, and little replica arcade machines and right. stuff. that's cool. And that, all that stuff is really I neat. I loved so, the original game when I was a kid. I played the shit out of that. Yeah, I, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't talk anybody out of buying anything at the affiliate link, but I think you'd $25 better spent on the uh, the handheld Rampage that <laughs> is the arcade perfect version than the uh, than the film itself. Well, I mean, that being said, our affiliate links, which you see on the actual oneofus.net page where we have images of all the movies, if you click on those, those bring you to the Amazon page for that item, but which oh. we do get a kickback if you buy those, but you can start from that page and buy anything as long as with that window oh, there you that go. you started, you can buy a washing machine and we get a kickback percentage of that washing machine as long as you start with our links. So yeah, do what he said. Don't buy the movie, click on it, and then scroll from there <laughs> to finding the get link. your mom something nice. Get your mom something nice. I don't know what's coming up. Maybe your mom's birthday, but come on. It's your mom. Have you called her? She loves to hear from you. Anyway, uh, that's it for this week's Digital Noise. Thank you so much, John, for joining me. I'll be Thank back you. next week with a, another show with Aaron. We've got a whole list of movies to talk with there as well. And uh, and make sure to check out all the other stuff on oneofus.net. A lot of stuff going up live this week, including Giganticast, where I'm sure Matt Frank will probably defend Rampage. At some I was going to say, what does he think of Rampage? He liked it, but with a with a sort of like, I understand that this is terrible, but I still enjoyed it. Hmm, you know? Okay. Fair enough. 